Hello, hello. Good to see you all. How are you guys enjoying this new weather? It's cool air. It's so nice. Um, so we, we just talked about road trip at the beginning of this thing. Um, in my opinion, this is like the perfect time to go down to the beach because uh, you're not going to die because of the sun, one. Um, but then two, this is kind of that point in the semester where things have gotten a little bit busy. How many of you are feeling it with all the tests and papers and, yeah, demands? And so a weekend away is a nice thing. Uh, but it's also that point in the semester where friendships have begun to either solidify or you start to feel alienated. Uh, and I want to speak specifically to those of you who feel sort of like on the, the fringe. Um, it's easy to be in a room this size and feel like, I don't know anybody. Um, I don't have any friends here. The people don't get me. Um, everybody's kind of got their own clique, and I'm not a part of it. And the whole reason we do something like the road trip is to help bring those walls down. Uh, anytime you get a group of people together, that's going to inevitably happen to some degree. We always have room to grow um, as a church in general, but then here specifically. But this is one of those steps that you can take to say, hey, I want to get to know people. And so, again, I just want to tell you after the service, if that's something that you want to be a part of, um, sign up. And legitimately, if there's like no way that you can pay the $35, like you don't have any money in your account and nobody in your family would be willing to help you out, um, just let us know. And we'll make a note, and we can see what we can do, okay? Want as many of you guys to go as, as you would like to. Um, and change direction just a bit. Um, the Lord has brought something to my attention as I've walked with him over the years. I've, I've not been a Christian super long. It was freshman year, actually here at SFA, that I became a believer. Um, but over time, as I've walked with the Lord, I've realized something about the way that I communicate with him in my prayer life. Um, there are times whenever my prayer life is focused on bending God to my will, right? Like there's something going on in life uh, that's uncomfortable, that's difficult, that I don't like, and my prayers get consumed with God change this. I don't want it to be like this. I'm uncomfortable, I'm frustrated, I'm hurting. Please change this. And it's not a bad thing to, to go to God with our cares, our concerns, our anxieties. The scriptures call us to do that. But there's a line that we can cross, that I have crossed, where over a season, prayer life becomes consumed with bending God to my will. I've got a picture in my mind of what I want my life to be like, and I'm asking God to bring that about. And really not much else factors in other than that. But then there's also been other times in my prayer life where my genuine posture before the Lord is, God, use me to do your will. Where I'm looking around and I'm saying, God, use me to bless other people. May my words, my actions, my relationships be a genuine gift and blessing to those people around me. And so I see this tension in me. And I see it right now. There are times whenever my prayer life is focused on bending God to my will, when the real place I should be is submitting myself to doing God's will. And I know that I'm not the only person in the room. I can hear somebody agreeing with me right now, but there's more of you here who can relate to that than just one person, right? Like there's things going on in your life and, and you start to feel like, if God would only do these things, 
then everything would be good. And your prayers get consumed with that and focused on that to where you lose any picture of the bigger picture. It's not so much about what God is calling you to do, who he's calling you to be. It's just about God alleviating whatever pains or concerns that you have. And so tonight, this text in Mark is going to remind us that the posture of a Christian is not to bend God to his will or her will. The posture of a Christian is to submit themselves to doing God's will. So go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to continue in the book of Mark. We've been going through this story that Mark is telling. And like I've said, just spilled all over my face. Like I've said, uh, Mark is telling this story about God coming in to save, to redeem, to renew through Jesus, the anointed king. And we've seen Jesus, the anointed king, introduced. He's the fulfillment of promises. We've seen Jesus, the king, exercises authority in the way that he heals, teaches, casts out demons, cleanses the unclean. And we've seen Jesus clash last week with the religious elite over and over and over. And it ended with this point when the religious elite see, okay, this is not going to change. He's not going to change his mind. We're definitely not going to change our mind. And they decide, we're going to have to get rid of this guy. We're going to have to kill him. And it's in this part of Mark that we're going to see various reactions to Jesus. In verses, chapter 3, verses 7 through 35, what we're going to see is different responses from people who are insiders with Jesus and those who are outsiders with Jesus. And we're going to see what distinguishes them. Insiders do the will of God. Outsiders oppose it. So let's go ahead and jump on in. We're going to go chunk by chunk, and we're going to start off with verses 7 through 12. And here we're going to see clamoring crowds around Jesus who follow after him, but mostly because they can get something from him. So the crowds clamor around him, and they follow after him because they can get something from him, not necessarily because they're insiders. Let's take a look. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. His influence is spreading broader and broader. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Jesus is a physical man. He can be crushed by a crowd. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So here we see this scene where the crowds clamor around Jesus, all because of the mighty things that he can do for them. Right? They, they see that just to touch this man heals a physical body. That just to be near this man can expel demonic spirits that oppress them. And so they, they've heard about this. They've seen evidences of people that they know. And they press in around him because of what he can do for them. Now, it's interesting to see that while Jesus came to do more than just provide relief for people, he still shows compassion. He doesn't hesitate and say, no, 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 I came to do more than this. Get out of my way. He actually continues to heal. He continues to cast out demons. He shows compassion 
even though his role is much bigger than this. And it's interesting to see just the, the kind of relationship that these people have with Jesus by the way that he responds to the demons, right? Look at, look at the end in verse 12. Whenever the demons within people see him, they say, you are the son of God. And then Jesus' response is to, add, to command them, say nothing about me. What's going on there? That title, son of God, is a rich title that Mark uses. In the ancient world, in ancient Israel, the son of God referred to the king of Israel. The king of Israel was God's son on earth, and he exerted the rule and reign of God amongst his people. This is a king term. The son of God is the anointed king. And so for demons to profess this is one, bad PR. You don't want demons saying who you are, right? Building your testimony on those guys. That's just not good. Uh, but another part of it is these people don't quite understand who Jesus is and what he's here to do. They're looking to get something from him. They're not necessarily insiders with him. And so if they hear, here's the king that we've been waiting for, they're going to fill that with their own meaning. You see, the Jews have been oppressed by Rome for quite a while, and then centuries and centuries before that by different pagan empires. And so for centuries, these people have been saying, if God would only bring a king who would cast off our oppressors, a mighty king who would rise us up and through military victory throw them off, that's who we need. That's the kind of king we need. And so with the masses crowding around him, don't fully understand who Jesus is or what he's here to do. For them to hear he's the son of God, they might take that and fill it with their own meaning. When Jesus is actually a very different king who's not going to conquer by violence, he's not going to conquer by coming in and throwing off pagan oppressors, he's going to conquer a very different way, by being obedient to the will of his father. And he's got to show that, he's got to demonstrate that to people. And so he tells the demons, don't speak of me. Your testimony will mislead and distract people. And so we see these crowds, they're pressing in to get something from Jesus. They're not necessarily insiders with him. They don't fully understand who he is and what he's here to do. But as we go on, we see people who are insiders. In verses 13 through 19, we see that Jesus appoints his insiders who will be his official messengers. Let's look at 13 through 19. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, or that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in this section, we see that Jesus appoints insiders, disciples who are going to be his core group, who are then going to be his official messengers, who are going to carry on the work that he's doing. And it's interesting to see how he does this. There's something that's subtle in the text that I want to talk just a little bit about because it's easy to pass over. There's a lot of Old Testament symbolism here. Jesus goes up where? Verse 13, he goes up on a mountain. In the Old Testament, the mountaintop 
is often a place where God meets with his people and he gives commands to them. He meets with his prophets and guides them. And here it's Jesus who's going to the mountaintop. In the Old Testament, it's God who calls out his people and who appoints his people to certain tasks. And here, it's Jesus who calls people to himself and appoints them to tasks. And whereas in the Old Testament, God took the nation of Israel and he divided them into 12 tribes so that they might serve him, it's Jesus calling men to himself, 12 specific men, and appointing them to be witnesses to the nation of Israel. And so in each of these ways, Jesus is stepping into Old Testament symbolism, and he's filling roles that only God filled in the Old Testament. And just like we said last week, this is one of those subtle, implicit ways where Jesus is stepping into the role of God. Mark doesn't say it explicitly in the gospel, but he's over and over and over demonstrating that Jesus is God in human form. He's doing the things that God said that he would do. So he calls his 12, and I want you to see that the role of the 12 is, is really twofold. So take a look at verse 14 again. He appointed the 12 for what? So that they might, one, be with him, and two, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Notice how being with Jesus precedes anything they do. Fellowshipping with Christ being with him, learning who he is from his character, what he does. This is fundamental. This is basic. The disciples can't be or do what they need to be or do unless they fellowship with Christ and are changed by fellowship with him. They can't advance the kingdom of God without getting to know the king and learning from him first. So this is the most basic and fundamental important thing that a disciple does. They're with Christ. They have fellowship with him. And only from that can they then go forth to preach about the kingdom of God and have the authority to advance it. This is the role of the twelve, is to be with Christ and to advance the things that he's doing, imitate him. And as they learn from him, his example, they can actually go out and do that. And we'll see that later in the book of Mark. Jesus will actually send them out to carry on ministry that he does himself. And so these are his insiders. These will be his official messengers. They will work with him, learn from him, eventually do the work that he does. And then whenever Jesus leaves, they will carry on the work that he's left them to do. But there are also outsiders when it comes to Jesus. We've seen that there's the crowds. It's kind of a mixed group. They don't quite understand who he is. They just want things from him. We've seen that there's insiders there's people that he appoints to learn from him, to be with him, and to do the things that he does. But there are also outsiders, people who not only don't do the will of God, but actively oppose the will of God. And so let's look at verses 20 through 35. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat the disciples, Jesus. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, to grab him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so Jesus calls these scribes to himself and says to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, that is Satan's house, and plunder his goods, that is people who are enslaved to him, unless that person first binds that strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent him and said, and sent to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here we see different examples of outsiders. Those people who not only don't do the will of God, but actively oppose it. And interestingly, this first group of outsiders is actually Jesus' own family. They come out to seize Jesus, come out to grab him and stop him, because they literally think that he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. Now the text doesn't tell us explicitly why they think that, but just think about what's going on with me, and you might try to, you might get to the point where you understand. Jesus was a normal human being who grew up just like his brothers and sisters, was cared for by his mother, right? But whenever he's 30, he goes out and he says, basically, I am the one bringing God's reign on earth. Repent from your sins and follow me. I'm doing the new thing that God has always promised will happen. That's a huge claim. What would it be like to see your brother do that? What would it be like to see your son do that? That's just got to be difficult to come to terms with. And then on top of that, as he's engaging with people and ministering, he is clashing over and over with the religious teachers that have taught them their whole lives. These people who basically shape their culture, who are the authorities in their culture, and they're clashing, 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 to the point where it's pretty clear that these guys hate him. What would that do to his family? Like, if he continues on this path, he's not only going to bring shame on them, they might actually be ostracized and cast out from the community. You're that family that that Jesus guy's from. What are you doing here? And then, on top of all of that, <clears throat> the crowds are growing and growing and coming from wider and wider around. So he's not some closet weirdo that they can just hush up and say, it's okay, it's okay. People just ignore him. He is gathering tons and tons of people and they're following him. He's got a lot of attention. And so for all of these reasons, they have to be freaking out. And instead of reassessing where they're at, instead of reassessing who Jesus is, they decide we have to go out and stop him. That verb, they go out to seize him. Verse 21, his family heard it, they went out to seize him. This is the same word that's used for arrests that are made under force later on in the gospel. And so this isn't just a, hey, come with us, it's okay. It's, hey, stop what you're doing and you're coming with us. They're trying to stop him. 
So not only do they think he's crazy, but they're actually trying to actively stop the reign of God that he's trying to bring on earth. They don't believe that he's the anointed king. And so they interfere with him. And then the second group that we see here in this text is actually the scribes from Jerusalem. These are the people who come in. They've heard the reports about what Jesus has been doing, how he's been clashing with all the teachers in his area. And this is their party line. They come on a mission, and they're going to slander him. They say, this guy that you're so fond of, he's empowered by the devil. And so you need to get yourself straight, cut ties with him, and line up again. Is basically what they're saying. They come in on a mission, and they decide to slander Jesus and say that he's empowered by Satan. And so that's their party line, and they're going to stick to it throughout the rest of the Gospels. And people are either going to believe them and side with them, or they're going to continue with Jesus, and they're going to be enemies of the religious elite. And it's interesting how Jesus points out a flaw in their logic. He says, okay, explain this to me. How does Satan benefit by destroying his own kingdom? How does Satan advance his own purposes by casting out his own demons out of the slaves that he's holding? That just doesn't make any sense. This is the reign and rule of God right before you. And you have pointed at it, and you have called it the work of Satan. You've called God evil. And so Jesus says, this is a line in the sand here. This is something where if you claim this, if you speak this, if you believe this, and you line up on that side, there's no coming back. You have just pointed at the work of God and called it the work of the evil one. And you've called the Holy Spirit who empowers me in my ministry, you've called him an unclean demonic spirit. You've called him Satan himself. And then there's no returning from that. Now, I just want to make a short little sidebar here. If any of you have ever struggled with wondering, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Like, am I forever gone? Um, that question in and of itself, I think, is an encouragement to you. Um, the, the unforgivable sin that we see here, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, being presented with the work of God and calling it the work of Satan, is the expression of a stone-hard heart. This is say, looking at a good thing and calling it evil. This is seeing the hand of God and calling it the hand of Satan and not having any remorse over that. And so if you are, have a tender conscience and you're worried, have I committed the unforgivable sin? I would say that that tender conscience and that concern actually shows that your heart is tender and soft. And just like Jesus says here, there are blasphemies and sins that are forgiven to the children of men. Any blasphemies they utter, they can be forgiven. And so... I just want you to know that I, I, my personal opinion is that this is a historically specific sin to be presented with the Messiah, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and call him empowered by Satan. And I think it's specific to that time. And then we see this principle of inclusion. So we see those two groups of outsiders, we see his family, we see the scribes, they're both opposing the work of God. But it doesn't end there. We see how people are included in God's family. We see that to do the will of God is what defines who's in God's family, who's an insider with Jesus. So as his family's trying to get into the house, as he's teaching, as he's surrounded by people, he redefines what it means to be a part of the family of God. He says, who are my brothers and my sisters? 
And he looks at the people who listen to him, who are receiving the reign of God breaking in, who are excited about being a part of that. And he says, these are my brothers and sisters. This is my mother. Those who do the will of God. And so Jesus is not just outright rejecting his family. He's not teaching that you have to reject your family in order to follow him um, in every single case. You don't have to dishonor your family. But he is making an emphatic statement. This is what's of utmost importance. And for some of us, there might come a point where devotion to Jesus leads to leaving the family. That might happen. It doesn't have to happen in every case. He's making a point about what's, what takes priority. And it's obedience to God. It's doing his will. Not just mere family relations. And so, tonight, God is actually calling you through this text to be an insider with Jesus. He is calling you to do the will of God. Beyond just bending God to your will, he's calling you to submit yourself to doing God's will. And so, just how do we break that down? The will of God, doing the will of God, living that out on a daily basis. I think we just say it simply in two ways. Pray and do. What does it mean to do the will of God? Pray and do. Prayerfully submit yourself to God's will, doing it. Like I was saying, there have been times in my life where I've been so consumed by a relational conflict that all my prayers have been bent on just fix this relationship. It's hurting my heart. It's making me anxious. It's having all these negative effects. And so all my prayers are just focused on this one issue. God, change this. And I begin to lose focus on why I'm here. I begin to lose focus on who I am. I begin to totally forget that there's a bigger, broader picture that God has called me to be faithful in. And so what does it look like to prayerfully submit to God's will? It looks something like this, waking up in the morning and saying, God, thank you for today. Thank you that you love me, that you've purchased me. I am yours. And because I'm yours, teach me to do what you want me to do. Help me to see those around me who I can share the gospel with. Help me to see those around me who I can demonstrate your love to. Use me to bless others. This is prayerfully submitting yourself to do God's will. And it's not a once and done deal. This is something that has to be ingrained over time. It's a simple concept. Just saying, God, I'm yours. Use me as you see fit. That's simple to think. But to ingrain that in yourself. To wake up every day and to have that be the posture of your heart. And then to live it. it takes a lifetime. So, like I said, what does it look like to do God's will? First of all, just prayerfully submitting yourself to do God's will. Posturing yourself before him and asking him to make clear, who are the people around you who he wants to bless through you? Who are the people who need to hear the good news of Jesus that you can just share that with? Who are the people around you who need to experience God's love through you? And as you pray that, your eyes will be opened to see those people. God is faithful to answer prayers more than, more than you might think. And as, as you have your eyes open, you actually begin to do those things. 
Do the things that God has set before you to do on a daily basis. And it's going to be days where you feel like, well, there's not a huge, magnificent thing that God has called me to do. That's okay. He's called you to be faithful in the daily ins and out tasks that he's given you to do. He's called you to be joyful, prayerful, loving, kind, speaking truth to those around you. But there are days when people will cross your path who do need to hear about the forgiveness of sins that's come through Jesus. Who do need to hear that God is loving and kind and has made a way for them to be restored to him. And as you pray, and as you have postured yourself over time and said, open my eyes, you're actually going to see those people. And when the time comes, step forward in boldness. How many people feel pretty Christians? How many people in here who would call themselves Christians would say, that seems pretty intimidating to think about just sharing the gospel with somebody in the middle of the day? Okay, there's a few people raising their hand. There's more people who feel intimidated by that than are raising their hands right now. Um, I'm one of them. Like, there are times whenever that's intimidating. You don't know how that person's going to react. And sometimes you feel like, I don't even know the words to say. But I'm telling you, the Spirit of God has been put within you to grant you boldness, to grant you conviction, to be able to speak the words that you need to speak in that moment. And so you don't have to walk in feeling like you're a theologian to be able to share, God is gracious and merciful and he's forgiven your sins because of Jesus. You want to know more? Come with me to church. Come on. That's a simple thing. And God has faithfully equipped you to do that on a daily basis. It's a matter of opening your eyes and then being willing to step forward and actually do the will of God. There's going to be times whenever you look around, you see family members, roommates, classmates who are suffering, who are struggling. There might be a time whenever your roommate is just covered with shame because of something they've done. And they might open up to you. And at that moment, for you to express the love of God is to sit there, to listen compassionately, to care for them, and to speak the truth in love that God's mercy and grace has forgiven them. There's going to be other times whenever family members lose a spouse or a kid. And the biggest thing that you can do is just sit and be with them. Be the tangible expression of God's love to that person by just being there. There are more ways than I can list about simple ways that you can love, be the expression of God's love to the people around you. And God has chosen to use you to do that. Those who are insiders with Jesus, those who are truly Christians, not only hear what God wants, not only talk about what God wants, they actually do the will of God. And so, I just ask you tonight, consider your prayer life. Is it more focused on bending God to your will? Is it more focused on the picture that you have in your mind for your life? And just trying to get God to do that. Or is it daily submitting yourself and saying, God, I'm yours. There are people around me who need to know you, who need to experience your love. Use me to do that. 